Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Local Japan Podcast. Today I speak with Ray Saito. We met because he writes a column on Substack called Konichi Value, where he goes in-depth into different Japanese companies and also does reviews on the Japanese real estate market. And he provides a lot of insight that people who might not be able to read or speak Japanese or people who don't know much about the Japanese business world can get some insight because he is a Japanese national, speaks fluent Japanese and English. So we get into his backstory a little bit and we talk about this idea that Japan is kind of rising again. Uh, we, we also talk about the Warren Buffett trade that happened because I think that's something that really kind of spurred interest in, in Japan for a lot of people. When Warren Buffett buys your companies, people get interested. So we kind of get into that one. We talk about the low interest rate environment. And uh, we also get a little bit into more of my realm of, of work in doing DIY renovation work on old homes and getting kind of getting into the uh, how that fits in to larger trends. So it was a really nice discussion. It was really good to meet him. After we spoke, I got interested in doing a deep dive into Warren Buffett because he's such an incredible figure in American business lore. I read a book called The Outsiders and that profiled him as this outside thinker within the investment world and then also the uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is a compilation of the wit and wisdom of Charlie Munger. So I've, I've gained so much from consuming the knowledge that Buffett and Munger both give out to the world. And I stumbled upon this podcast called Invest Like the Best, which turns out to be one of the most incredible uh, podcasts I could ever, I could find about business and about investing. So that's been great. But the podcast that really blew me away was the host of Invest Like the Best uh, had on a guest called uh, David Senra. And this guy is the creator of the Founders podcast, where he goes in depth into analyzing the great lives of different founders throughout history, whether that's business founders like like Warren Buffett and Munger and Carnegie and Rockefeller and Jobs and these kind of figures, or it could also be founders of countries. So important figures like Winston Churchill and Mark Twain. So David Senra's guest appearance on Invest Like the Best really just blew me away. So I, I immediately went to the Founders podcast feed and started listening to a couple episodes and um, fell in love. And I'm bringing this up because I listened to a lot of the episodes where he covers the writings of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and other autobiograph or other biographies about them. I thought I would just share a couple of insights that I've learned recently through the podcast and through their writings uh, that I've kind of been able to to take from my own life as I go through this journey in Japan. And it was just encouraging to, to be able to listen to these wise old mentors and apply it to my life and, and understand like my place in my life at this moment. One unconventional piece of wisdom that Buffett and Munger always preach is focus, uh, which sounds obvious, but in the world of investing, people always talk about diversification to lower your risk. But the thing that's so interesting is Buffett and Munger, they're generally against diversification. Munger likes to say that it's diversification. And uh, they also apply that not just to investing, but also to, to life. And they say that the greatest people who build the greatest companies, or the greatest products, they, they have a very vicious, vicious focus on one thing only. And so that was a nice reminder to me to just to know what your expertise is and to focus on making it better. Going back to first principles, it's all about improving your skills. So in my case, my focus is on Japan and restoring their abandoned homes. That's, that's the focus. That's the expertise that I'm trying to curate. And so it's a good reminder to stay on that path, to read people who came before me, to study the subject deeply and become an expert in this realm, rather than try to stray and, and, and get into other subjects that are interesting but not ultimately important towards my progress as a aspiring practitioner in this very specific field. A second principle that was drawn out of Buffett and Munger's writings is that making a lot of money comes second behind first finding what you're interested in. 
so Buffett was saying once that if you took him and his partner Munger out of America and dropped them into a new country with nothing, you know, without any of their wealth, but with the same jobs, he said that they would be perfectly happy continuing to do the exact same thing that they're doing now because they generally love the work that they do. So that's the first step is, although it sounds cliche, you have to find what you love. And the second thing is maybe money is not the most important thing to you in your life. But in the case of Buffett and Munger, they said that if you do want to make money, then first you find what you love to do. And then you have to find a way to make a profitable business out of it. You build a something that can generate cash for you around this realm of interest. There's, I think, you know, probably a lot of people who trace the money first before their interests. And so rather than finding something that they love, they, they'll go to Wall Street or they go to whatever is currently the craze. If work feels like play, then no one can outwork you. And I found that to ring so true to my core because... So I, here in Kobe, I volunteer my time at this carpentry group. I remember just yesterday, I was helping out in demolishing the interior of this old house. So it's a, a very nice, old, probably Showa-era abandoned home. And the previous owners had built a bunch of modern walls in the interior. So it kind of looked like a 1960s interior that they had placed inside of this old home. And so we were just getting rid of everything and returning the old building to its old skeleton. And that was it was really fun just like to get a crowbar and, and to take out all the nails and all the new wood. Yesterday was a kind of a cleanup day. And I, my task was to put the debris, so there's a lot of dirt that fell down um, from the walls, and put the debris into bags. And I was just doing that all day, just shoveling debris into bags and piling them up. It was hard manual labor, and I got very dirty, and it was hot and sweaty, but I was just totally loving the moment. I, I just genuinely enjoyed doing that work. And I think most people would hate to do that. For me personally, I loved it. That kind of work feels like play to me. And so no matter who else is in the room doing that work, no one can outwork me because I'm just going to keep doing it because it's fun. To be able to have that feeling and to have that knowledge about myself is very reassuring because it makes me know that I'm on the right track. I've kind of found the thing that I want to do. Going back to the first point, it's my job to continue to focus on it and to get better every day and to not diversify, a.k.a. to not get distracted. The third point that I got from the podcast is the importance of compound interest. So this is something that Buffett and Munger preach, and it shows in their balance sheet. Um, But Compounding doesn't just have to do with uh, money. It also has to do with this idea of of not getting too bitter. Because I think people, including myself, I'm on this journey here in Japan trying to restore homes and create a business around it. And it's, it's really not easy. And so if compound interest creates a, a graph that's an exponential curve, I'm on the flat part of that curve, I hope. What Buffett and Munger would say is that you're on that graph. You're on that arc. You just can't see it because humans are really bad at discerning time and discerning the power of compounding wealth over time. So that kind of wealth doesn't just mean cash money, but it also means resources. It means relationships. um, It means quality of life. So while things may seem flat, and I get frustrated at myself and I get stressed. It's a good reminder to myself to think, just just keep keep working hard and don't get resentful. <laughs> this fourth point is the last point that I kind of took away from Buffett and Munger at the moment for myself, which is that they don't listen to the analysts at all. They don't listen to people who make market predictions, economic predictions. And uh, Munger has this great line where he says that, in the old days, kings used to hire oracles who would read sheep guts to predict the future. And he says 
<laughs> I think they say something like if you, um, yeah, like re- reading analyst economic predictions and outlooks, it's a waste of time or it makes you stupid. You know, they, they have those kind of witty kind of comments. And he says that reading those things is the same thing as the king hiring somebody to to read the sheep guts. So don't do it. Don't listen to the analysts. In really terrible economic conditions, it doesn't matter to them. They'll still buy businesses. They'll make purchases that don't seem intuitive at the given economic moment because it looks bad. But what Warren Buffett always has said in his shareholder letters is that he's not a stock picker. He's a business picker. He's he's in it to buy good businesses. And so that last point also just gave me some solace in my life because you have, I mean, first thing is you do have to be rational. Like you have to choose a business that is actually good, that has some tailwinds behind it, um, that can generate cash. But my focus should be on building that good business and not listening to the distractions of what people might say about second order forces or second order issues. My job is to just focus on the business fundamentals. It's not rocket science. So those are just some thoughts that I've been having recently after having had my discussion with Ray Saito and discovering the Founders Podcast. The last very important thing to note is that in the podcast, Ray and I do discuss different investments, but uh, you definitely should not take our conversation as financial advice. We're not financial advisors So make sure to do your own research. We may or may not have positions in the securities that we discuss on the podcast. Please use this podcast for informational purposes only. So with that little disclaimer, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ray Saito. And you can check out his substack, Konichi Value, which I will also link in the show notes. Enjoy. Thank you very much, Ray Saito, for for joining me today on the Local Fan Podcast. It's uh, very nice to meet you. Likewise. Thanks so much for reaching out to me. Um, I also got a chance to read a lot of your work that you've been doing. Uh, You have a Substack newsletter, and you really dive into the Japanese markets and Japanese real estate. And the, the name of your Substack is Konichi Value. And so I think... The hypothesis behind your whole, all the research you do is that Japan is a country of value, of deep value, um, in terms of the stock market and in terms of perhaps real estate. We'll get into that. And this as an economy as a whole, it's a country that's gone through 20 years of stagnation and maybe there's some kind of recovery or growth that's happening again. Why don't you just briefly uh, tell me about how the blog came about and how you got interested in this kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Konnichi value, as you say, it's uh, Japanese konnichiwa and value combined. And value being value investing. So yeah, a lot of your uh, listeners have probably heard about uh, Warren Buffett and his you know deep value thinking. And I think that... Japan is a country, as you say, that's been 20 to 30 years in stagnation. And people, a lot of people have forgotten the extreme value that's here. Uh, It was a bit overblown in the 80s and 90s. And then it just stopped and people focused elsewhere, you know, India, China, etc. And kind of forgot about Japan. But Japan, over those 30 years, has changed a lot, but also has kept a lot of what makes Japan so amazing as anyone who's been here can tell you. And uh, that has really made me interested in opening up this world of value that people have forgotten uh, for many, many reasons. I mean, Japan is quite an isolated country in many ways, a shimaguni or like island country, right? And not many people speak English, not many documents or company reports or real estate assets are in English. So I feel like to have a source where people can actually find out about the incredible value that's here, both in beauty and monetary value, 
is so underreported, which is kind of what my project has been about. What I was thinking is that a lot of the people, I, mean, I guess English speakers, or you know, just people around the world who are interested in investing in Japan, will probably be part of a hedge fund, and they'll probably have some kind of branch in uh, in Japan doing the research. So they'll be conducting this research internally. And so there is a lot of insight on the Japanese markets, but it's all done in private and it's done for these large uh, professional funds. And so there really is not, there aren't that many, as you said, very many English speaking people uh, or who people, people who are bilingual who will conduct the research essentially for retail, right? For people like you and me. And so yeah. I think what you're doing is, is interesting. It's definitely a niche and it's something that's under, underused for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So you, you yourself are, you yourself are an example of, of some kind of value. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. And to be honest, it's often shocking how many funds abroad, you know, if you invest in Japan fund or whatever, when you live in the US or Sweden, because I'm half Swedish, um, you, you realize that their research is actually very shallow. So sure, some have offices here, but many don't. And all they do is just invest in, you know, a couple of companies like Toyota or Sony and call it a day without doing the research because, you know, it's, it takes time and you, obviously have to know some Japanese to get around here. So I think just opening up like the bare basics of the Japanese world is so underreported. And that's kind of where I hope to have some help. And there's been a lot of interest, way more than I thought, actually. So I'm growing rapidly. And uh, I just hear comments every day from people saying like, I had no idea about like that, you know, Japanese stocks could be valuable or that Japanese housing is actually super interesting as a market. Yeah, that, that, that's really great. I'm, I'm happy for your your growing success and I hope it continues to grow. You are half Japanese, half Swedish, and you lived in Sweden for a little bit. Yes, so actually I grew up uh, mostly in Sweden, even though I was born in Japan. Um, so my Swedish is both I think mentally and also language-wise, I think I'm a bit more Swedish than Japanese. Oh, wow. But I lived here for around 10 years, so <laughs> I know a way around Japan now, too. So did your parents, they moved to Sweden, I'm assuming, after, after the bubble or maybe during the bubble? Yeah. Uh, so actually, um, interesting story is I grew up uh, partly in the U.S. where my dad was studying uh, right oh. after I was born. And uh, then came to Sweden around 94 um, because of uh, the American job market wasn't that good. <laughs> and then, you know, on and off in Japan, went to Japanese school for a little bit, came back to Sweden, etc. So I definitely experienced the multicultural world of Sweden and Japan. Okay, I see, I see. So they, they were, I guess, outside of Japan before the bubble burst, but then it burst and you were in Sweden the whole time. And yeah, then, exactly. And then now, now you're here. Um, yeah. So I think the big story that is it captured a lot of Americans is the fact that Warren Buffett recently made this very large trade in large Japanese conglomerates. Some uh, include Itochu or uh, Mitsubishi, Mizuho, those kind of very, yeah. really large companies. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, um, because I think it's symptomatic of the whole trend that we're, we're talking about, whereas Japan is returning on the world stage as a as an economy that you can trust and as an economy that will grow. And it's, it's also maybe it's a, a way to hedge your risks because Japan's economy is not linked so closely to America's economy so that if America gets into a recession, maybe your assets will be safer in Japan. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but uh, maybe <laughs> you could just uh, discuss the Warren Buffett trade and kind of discuss the macroeconomics of Japan today. Yeah. 
That's super interesting, by the way, that Warren Buffett has dedicated, I think, around 10% of his fund, Berkshire Hathaway, to Japan, which is the largest amount of money in any country outside of the U.S. And uh, he's a very smart man. <laughs> and I think his argument in his latest uh, reports, which are very personal, by the way, that said nobody should read, is that... Asia as a whole is a very interesting market. He owns, you know, stocks in BYD, the uh, Chinese car company. He owns a large share of TSMC, the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer, which has all been really good trades. Uh, and recently, as you say, he's gone more and more into Japan. And he says this for two reasons. So one is that he believes that the Japanese market is finally open enough and regulated enough to be a super safe investment. So especially in the 90s, Japan was, uh, you know, quite murky in their uh, reporting, etc. And all these things, according to him and according to me too, have basically been fixed. Japan is now one of the most regulated markets, especially in Asia. And he believes that that has helped people see the true value of Japan. So you have these massive conglomerates. They are super undervalued because their business model is deemed to be a bit old. You know, they own hundreds of different companies and try to create synergies. And we lived in a world where focus was the main idea of a business. You know, you make one thing, you make it good. But these companies that own multiple, multiple businesses have actually shown to create synergies among businesses that don't look that related. So that's one of the reasons he has invested a lot of money. But the second one, and perhaps the one that Japan doesn't get enough credit for, is that in Asia, Japan, after perhaps Singapore, is the most regulated market. And so you look at China or Taiwan or South Korea, for that matter, they have great companies. But when you invest money, you don't know what's going to happen with that money. And so in China, obviously, you have the problem with the government that, you know, it might, the government might do whatever they want to do any day, right? South Korea is more old Japanese style where it's not as regulated as Japan is now. And then Taiwan, obviously, you have the geopolitical risks that any day China could invade Taiwan and basically wipe out their stock market. And so seeing all those things, Warren Buffett basically concluded that you put money in Japan first, you get undervalued companies. And then secondly, you get the safety that really can only be had in countries like Singapore and Asia. While Singapore doesn't have any companies to speak of, really, um, Japan has thousands of companies that are both undervalued and extremely efficient today. Yeah, when you say the word regulated, so there is very, very strong regulation in, in China, and in in Korea, but it's a very specific kind of regulation where it's some some kind of uh, collaboration between government and and the companies. And so, from what I know, is that they are like they're in bed with each other. So, the corruption essentially. Um, so when you say regulation in Japan, like Japan's the most regulated, uh, do you mean like it's the most transparent? Um, is that maybe a better phrasing to use? I think yes. And also in terms of uh, just creating regulations on an international basis that are internationally recognized, Japan has come a long way. So, you know, they use the same accounting standards as the Western world and the same standards of counting asset values, etc., which especially China hasn't been on board yet. Uh, South Korea is getting there, but they're nowhere near the way Japan has gone. So tell me about the uh, real estate trends in Japan, because this is a nice segue into real estate, because from what I know, like the United States recently, Japan had a low interest rate policy, and they kept that policy since the bubble, essentially, where they were in such terrible depression that they used the low interest rate. I think sometimes they were negative, right? The negative interest rate to try to encourage growth, to encourage business and entrepreneurship. Now that Japan's economy is 
kind of returning to some kind of place of value. Is the interest rate rising? Is it staying low? What, what is their kind of what is their kind of policy today? Yeah, you're touching on a really interesting and thorny subject. Uh, that Japan, uh, for what I know, has the lowest interest rates in the world uh, of any developed country, and uh, it is fascinating, right? That like you have countries like the U.S. or most of Europe who has now interest rates from their uh, central banks up towards four or five percent, right? Uh, which for the last uh, 10, 15 years have been unheard of, almost unspeakable, right? And Japan still has a negative interest rate, basically staying the same as during the right after the extreme financial crisis of 2008. And so with that policy, you'd think that you know, we'd see inflation numbers on like 20 or 30% because America, as you know, they have inflation of 10% still. It's gone down, but it's still, you know, up on historical levels, right? But in Japan, inflation is still around 2, 3, 4%, which is crazy when you think about it, right? And I think there's many explanations to why this is, uh, and nobody knows for sure. But from my experience, it's, Japanese people are very risk averse and they don't like changes. And so even though you have this super low interest rate where you can still, if you buy a house today, you can get a loan for 0.5% interest, a 30 year loan, which is crazy. That's even lower than most countries, right? In, in before their rent rises. And I just think that Japanese people, they're, willing to sacrifice so much to keep things stable against the government's detriment, right? So companies, they don't like to raise salaries. They haven't raised salaries for 30 years because of deflation, right? And that's really bad. But on the opposite side, companies also eat up any price increases. So you go to a supermarket and, you know, whenever there's like a 50 yen race on rice or something, they will literally announce it months in advance that like, we're so sorry, we have to raise the price of rice for 50 yen or 100 yen, right? So you have like a double-edged sword where uh, people don't get richer, but also people don't pay more for services and products in Japan. So even though we have increasing costs all around the world, so far the Japanese side has managed to eat up those costs and also keep the salaries low. What do you mean by eat the cost? So a lot of companies in Japan actually are, this, especially for an American mindset, I think comes as a surprise, but companies are not as profit-driven as America here. Um, oh, if you ask like a CEO of, you know, a, a big Japanese company, like what's your, what's your main goal? A lot of them will say like, it's to keep all the employees or like it's, it's to keep stability. And so I think that's why they're willing to basically sacrifice a lot of profits to keep some employees and also to, to keep the costs the same way so that their customers won't be angry. Right. I see. Okay. I thought that, that reminds me of this one very rare instance in in the states where inflation was increasing dramatically and Walmart said that they weren't going to raise their prices like they were going to take the hit and that was a, kind of a strange thing that they decided you know given that it was the United States um and that that you know that hit the news people were really curious but their whole idea was like well we're, we're, we're Walmart. We're this gigantic company that supplies much of the lower class and middle class of America with their goods. And so if our prices rise, it's going to really take a hit on, on our society. So they wanted to keep prices down. And that was, that was interesting. That was really rare. Um, and so that, that sounds exactly like the Japanese mindset, I, I guess. That's kind of how that just kind of came to mind. Oh, well, I actually didn't know that, but that's super interesting. And I think as an American, you become a bit suspicious, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> what are they Why thinking? Are about <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, in Japan, yeah. I think people, uh, I don't know, think that that's normal. That's the norm. Hmm. That is fascinating. And are they going to raise interest rates? Like, I mean, what, what is the policy going to be in the future? They're just going to keep it low? 
That's a, I mean, if I knew that, I could probably become a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my, uh, from reading up about it on Japanese sources, uh, Japan has, the Bank of Japan has a lot of levers, right? So not only do they have low interest rates, they also do quantitative easing. They buy a lot of stocks from the Japanese stock market to prop up the market and, you know, to give basically free money to a lot of companies and including the government. And these levers have been turned down a little bit, but they still have a long way to go. So before we see any interest rate hikes, I think we'll see, you know, a bit of uh, winding down on these policies. So the low interest rate will likely stay uh, for some time. I would be very surprised if we see Japan even go to 0% within the year. Okay. So this is a great transition to, to real estate because in the U.S., if you want to get a mortgage right now, it's like 7% or something. That's it's, insane. It's, it's, it's very high. And so if you wanted to do the same in Japan, as you said, get a 0.5% 30-year mortgage, that's pretty incredible. So... I wanted to quickly talk about the differences between real estate in the U.S. versus in Japan. It seems like Japan's the place to be right now if you wanted to buy a house. Um, yeah. Um, I think, so Tokyo, right? Tokyo can easily be compared to L.A. or New York or any major mega city, right? But the prices of real estate here are much, much cheaper. So, you know, I have a friend, she bought a place, she has a dog, so she can't live, you know, she basically has to buy a place, right? And she bought a place for around 30 million yen, so around 70 square meters uh, in a relatively old apartment, right? Uh, that's dog friendly. And she can get to Shinjuku, basically the city center, in less than 30 minutes. And she got an interest rate of 0.6% that she will pay off in the next 30 years. And that's just insanity, right? That's what you would maybe get on the American countryside. And sure, you know, it, it's small, but to even be able to live that close to the city for that kind of money, it's it's quite crazy when you think about it compared to any other of these mega cities. And 30 million yen is like 20 something thousand dollars yeah i'd say two hundred thousand maybe two hundred twenty thousand dollars yeah okay wow uh so what i'm trying to do in my life is to renovate small very traditional homes these kind of kominka styled homes and it's i would say that the community that i am in are mostly hobbyists and a lot of people who do diy work and so i think for us it's I mean, it's it's the perfect situation where the, the house is, is insanely cheap. It's worth $50,000 or less. Um, you have to do a lot of renovation work. But if you wanted to get a mortgage, you could easily get one of those mortgages you were talking about for a low interest rate. And you're, you're a happy person and you can have your property in Japan. So that's what I'm trying to do. What about uh, other kinds of real estate markets? So what about commercial real estate and other pro and like more larger projects? Are those also profitable these days? Are those popular amongst Japanese people? What is that like today? So could you, uh, when you say commercial, uh, could you give some examples? Um, some examples would be office buildings, towers, large shopping mall projects. Yeah, I guess we could start with that. Um, there's also residential housing too. So if you wanted to buy um, an apartment complex or build an apartment complex, like I'm wondering if that's profitable these days. I'm curious about that. I think my suspicion is that the Japanese population is, are they buying new homes? Are they just renting? Like, I'm just kind of curious about people's behaviors. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak that much for office buildings. I haven't bought one yet. <laughs> but I think in general, especially when it comes to shopping, offices, etc., Japanese construction companies have a very long time frame. So if you ever come to Shibuya, for example, you'll see probably four or five new mega skyscrapers being built. And these have been planned for 10, 20 years. And uh, I think there we, we're probably going to see a glut because they were planned in an environment pre-COVID. 
and you know when everybody basically had to go to the office which even in japan is changing quite a lot where many people are working from home now yeah. and so i think for office space we'll probably see it's still the occupancy rate is still much higher than new york or san francisco but I think I have a hunch that it's going down and it might not be as great of an investment as it used to be. And that's probably going to shake up the Japanese market a bit because, as you probably heard, real estate in Japan has not been a great investment since the bubble burst in the 90s. And so a lot of large conglomerates and large companies have kind of shifted towards office buildings, et cetera, because, you know, the tenants are bigger, they can pay, and also they stay in the office until the company goes bankrupt often, right? So I think we'll see a shift even more to more real estate now where the profits and also the yield, right, how much money you can get yearly will change in favor of real estate and change of, uh, you know, housing for individuals, et cetera. Which, to be fair, I'm quite happy about because I think that is very underutilized in Japan, right? Like you have a lot of investments in new apartment buildings, but they're they're kind of built in office style, right? Like these big tower mansions, kind of ugly and just like, you know, it's it's more like as an office style where people just try to make money and not so much in thinking about like how people want to live. And I think, especially from the consumer side, we're seeing a shift now where people are kind of tired of these like cardboard cutter uh, houses and they want something more personal and, and something more that adheres to their lifestyle, right? And so mm. if you look at the Japanese housing market, we're actually seeing a growth in demand. So it shifted a lot, especially since 2010. It's increased every year as an average all over Japan by around 10, 20% in real estate values. So I think we're seeing a, a more normalization where Japanese people are actually looking at their house and thinking, this is you know the biggest investment I ever gonna make. So I really wanna take care of it. It's no longer just like a place that I house myself and then go to work. It's a place I feel comfortable in. And so, for my money, I think real estate in Japan for housing is extremely interesting. Yeah, the apartment complexes that you discussed about that are ugly, that people don't really feel at home in. Yeah, that's a, a huge passion of mine. I, I can't stand them. And I, I'd wish people would, I wish there was a way for people to, to have their own space to, as you said, to feel like they're, they're living in, in a place that's a bit more personalized, which is I think what a lot of uh, the people in my kind of niche are, are doing, right? They're trying to renovate these older homes, maybe go to the countryside, or it doesn't have to be the countryside, but have their own place, um, have a space that they can personalize themselves. So I, I know, of course, it's, it's very popular amongst foreigners. People are very interested in these cheap homes. But how about Japan? From what I've read and learned is that there's a really large wave of Japanese people who are interested in leaving the city and getting their own space and taking up a project in a a home with a bit more culture and, and more character. Um, what have you seen? Would you agree with that kind of uh, cultural shift? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I work a lot in tech and here it's it's so visible where people are, you know, they're kind of tired of their, you know, one bedroom apartment and uh, they're trying to live outside of Tokyo. And as you may know, like the beauty of Tokyo or almost any other major city in Japan is that if you want to get here from the countryside, it can take less than an hour. So you can live in a, in a big spacious house next to nature. And then the days you need to go to Tokyo, you just take the train for an hour and, and you're right in the center of it. And I saw some trend recently, it was very interesting, is that during COVID, um, Tokyo's population actually shrank uh, for the first time in modern history, uh, which is, is quite crazy, right? Like that's, you know, 37 million people live around here and that the population's shrinking a bit really shows that, you know, even in grander Tokyo, people feel a bit claustrophobic maybe, or they feel like the opportunities are not here and they're looking for housing outside of Tokyo, which is really beautiful. Remote work probably had a large part in that, but even larger was the was COVID, right? That was a huge 
catalyst. Yeah, for sure. So we're talking about value. And I just wanted to quickly address the myth about Akia. So when people that live abroad are interested in buying a property in Japan, there's just a couple myths that are flying out there. Like you can buy a house for zero yen, but I wanted to just address the reality of the situation. My, my guess or my estimation is that it's, it is very deep in value. These homes are very beautiful. They have a lot of history and they're, they're worth preserving and they're also cheap, but they're not free. Um, so I was just wondering if you could give a quick uh, background on perhaps the history of these abandoned homes and then the current trends that people should be aware of in terms of pricing and acquiring this kind of property, especially if you're a foreigner who who lives abroad. Absolutely. Uh, Akia is a super interesting topic, to be honest. And uh, I mean, there's many reasons why they exist, but to give the most basic ones is first, as most people know, Japan has a shrinking population. And not only a shrinking population, but a lot of people are moving into the bigger cities to, you know, get closer to economic activity and get a better job, right? So you have that double whammy, uh, which basically uh, depopulates communities very quickly. And these akias are created for that reason that you, in Japan, as we talked about before, housing here is not considered a great investment, so a lot of people buy a house and then when they leave it, it's basically like a car, you know, you sell it for a depreciated value. And so Akias have come about where people have a really old house. It can be beautiful condition. It can be absolutely amazingly historically um, significant, but people just don't feel like they want to invest to keep it alive because you know they don't know if they can get that return on investment so they end up abandoning it or you know if if someone passed away in the house grandparents etc they end up not taking that inheritance to stop paying inheritance tax and these houses just stay empty and and you know rot away uh, in on land that you know can be really useful so it's it's very sad and this has prompted the government and other municipalities to basically give them away for free. And there are strings attached, obviously. Uh, but in reality, you do get the house for free. Uh, the strings attached can be, for example, that you have to renovate it or that you have to live there for a certain amount of years or that you only get it if you have kids, etc. that you're going to bring to the community. But you can, even if you're a foreigner, doesn't matter. You can still get an Akia uh, for free if you meet certain conditions. And we talked about the urban, sorry, the rural to urban migration that happened in Japan. And then there's a recent, recent new trend of, of people leaving Tokyo. And so would you say that the, the policies have been successful from what I have seen has been, there's been two things. One is the rural revitalization core, which is a very common volunteer program for youth. Who hmm. I think they're usually college age, and then they go to some rural area to support usually the more elderly community there or the farming community in some kind of way with different projects, which is awesome. I think that's great. And the second thing I've seen is like different t- TV programs. There's a lot of TV programs that highlight stories of Japanese people buying and renovating these old homes. I don't know. Have you seen that also? I feel like it, there's a cult, like a new new thing rising up in the culture. Yeah, oh, for sure. I think it's, you know, it was a slow start. Akia has, you know, they've been around for over 20 years, but more recently it's, it's taking off. And especially among foreigners, I, I see a renewed interest of people wanting to live in the Japanese countryside. And also people want to revitalize these amazingly built houses, you know, that have stood the test of time and stood multiple earthquakes, right? Uh, I follow a Swedish guy <laughs> that actually he's bought an Akia um, in Setagaya, so quite close to Tokyo, that he has renovated for two years. And he, you know, tells the hardships, etc. which is, I think this is very good because as you say before, it was, it was more headlines, you know, oh, get a free house in Japan. That's crazy, right? But now it's really like, okay, this is what it means. This is what you need to do. 
And if you're willing to do it, you can get it. And so I think like the reality has set in to people. People understand that you have to invest a lot of time and a lot of money and, you know, basically be able to live in an area like that. And I think that's what has been needed this whole time to actually create a movement of people wanting to live in Akias. But as I've heard from many people and probably you too, it's, you know, you really need someone professional to help you out a bit because uh, it's really not just getting an Akia. Like there are so many things you have to be aware about, like termite infestation or just like getting rid of trash in Japan is really hard. So if you're going to do renovation, that's going to cost a lot or specific building methods that you can't just have any carpenter work on an Akia. It has to be someone that knows what they're doing. And so I think with that information at hand, finally, people can actually, you know, fulfill the dream of living in an old uh, rural Japanese countryside area. Yeah, what, one of the things I've learned is that, so it's pretty incredible what the Japanese government did in opening up the market to foreigners because there's no restrictions on resident status. You can just buy a house uh, or any kind of property, even if you're not a resident or a citizen of Japan. So you can be living abroad and still have a property um, in your portfolio. The one thing is you're, you're going to be really limited in how you can use it because you can only come to Japan on a tourist visa and uh, that there's restrictions there where it's right 90 days at a time. And I think it's 180 days a year max. So you'd have to do a lot of flying between your home country and Japan. But yeah, it's pretty amazing that it's possible. And I think hopefully, it, I think it is contributing to the to resolving the Akia problem. All these people coming over and, um, and restoring these great properties, these great assets. So there's three stages in that I kind of see in, in, in property, uh, in real estate. There's one part, which is buying. The second one is selling. And the third one is inheriting. And I just quickly wanted to have this opportunity to ask you about taxes in those three areas, just as a resource for people to, to know what they're getting into. So if, of course, when you buy a house, you have to pay tax. Like, I guess it's a consumption tax. Is there any other kind of tax, like the acquisition tax or something like this? Oh, yeah. Well, so it's interesting. And I think like it's the tax system of Japan is quite cumbersome, to be fair. And Japan is definitely not a low-tax country like Singapore, for example, which I think it's it's a double-edged sword. I mean, and the bad side, it's made people more reluctant to uh, you know invest in housing. But on the good side, I think that's why Japan has so many houses because people don't see houses as something you know to invest and hold. It's it's more of a place to live, right? Which it should be. And so when you say, for example, you know, that foreigners, they, they can own land here, they can own residence uh, houses. The reason why the population is not hyper against it, like we've seen in many other countries, is because it's still affordable to live here. And they, you know, as a foreigner, you still have to pay the acquisition tax, the property tax, etc. But for taxes, I think... Um, Buying property, it's, you know, there's a lot of minor taxes that adds up. So you have acquisition tax that's around one to 2% uh, of the property value. And then you have a property tax, which is, you know, based on the prefecture. So around another 1%, 1 to 2% based on where you live. And then obviously you have a mortgage tax. So if you have a mortgage, you have to pay a little bit of tax on that. And on top of that, which is quite interesting, is if you sell your property within five years, so basically, you know, flipping houses, you have mm. to pay a capital gains tax of 30%, which is quite high. Oh, wow. Cool. And that goes down. So after... That is so good to know. Right? And I think a lot of people that comes in here, let's say you're, you're just an investor who wants to buy something on the high market and then sell it within one to two years, like you're going to pay a lot of tax. And so, and then obviously, if you hold it longer, the taxes goes down. I think it can go down to 0%, but it stays around 15% after five years um, of owning a property and hopefully living in it. That's, I think that's so interesting because it's a very Japanese, I think, mentality of, I guess, long-term long thinking. Um, 
like you're not here to flip this thing. You're here to, to live in it for a long term. Um, so I guess the, the negative part of that is that there's the market's less dynamic. I guess there's like less activity, less people acquiring property. But then the positive part of it is that if you want to buy a property in Japan, it's because you really want it. It's because you want to use it. It's because you love it. And so it attracts a very passionate person, I would say. I think it's, it's been good for Japan, but I think the properties in Japan, you know, as you, you know, there's a lot of ugly properties here. Um, a lot of uh, cardboard boxes, so to speak. But at the end of the day, even if you put taxes on it, people need to have somewhere to live, right? So when people are interested in houses, just like they're interested in cars, they will spend a lot of money to make it their own to make it unique and, and to really invest in time and effort to, you know, pick up the material and pick up the places in a way where, you know, I come from Sweden. Um, I've seen the US and Canada having the same issues where people basically renovate their house so that the property value will go up. So, you know, you have like these island kitchens and white bathrooms that people don't even like that much, but it's, it's just like a, a standard way of making property prices go up. And Japan has much less of that, which I think is beautiful. Where mm. people, you know, when they renovate, they really do it because they want to. They want to make it their own. We have uh, the capital gains tax is very fascinating. It's a really good thing for people to know as a very large asterisk in their acquisition of property. And then the last one I wanted to ask you about was about inheritance. And um, I feel like this is something that really turns a lot of people off because it's kind of scary. Yeah, but could you tell me about how inheritance tax works in Japan? Because I'm I don't understand it at all because I'm an American, so we don't have this. Yeah. And hopefully you don't have to pay inheritance tax <laughs> in Japan. Uh because it is is very high. And um <clears throat> I mean I like the the basic concept of the inheritance tax. I think it, it's quite good. And it's that, you know, Japan they see themselves as a very uh, equal country. And in many ways it is. And it's basically that you shouldn't be able to build wealth just from your parents' wealth. And so if you are very, very rich, sure, you will still be very rich when your parents uh, pass away. But at least there is some damper on it to keep you from just amassing wealth because you have wealth. Uh, but with that said, of course, there's a lot of issues, right? Like when you start with inheriting companies or land, those things might have a value, but you don't intend to sell them or, you know, they create a lot of value. And to have to tax that from day one when you inherit it can create a lot of issues, which Japan is battling with now because there's so many old people here, right? But uh, just to give you a taste of the inheritance tax, right? So there is an exemption. Uh, so I think it's 30 million yen. You don't pay any tax. You just pay some, some basic, uh, you know, processing taxes. And after that, you start paying 10% tax on all, uh, monetary value, uh, properties or basically anything on monetary value you inherit. And that goes up to around 15% for, uh, 10 million yen. And then 20% from 30 million yen. And most interestingly, perhaps is after 50 million yen, it becomes 55%. So a big jump there. And, and basically, if you know, if you inherit a lot of wealth, half, more than half of it can be taxed by the government. And this is interesting, right? Because it's from day one and it's properties, it's companies, it's anything of value. So that can be a big burden for people who don't have, uh, you know, assets that are liquid. Oh, can you repeat what that 30% was? Did I say 30%? So 30 million yen is tax 20%. Oh, I see. I see. I see. And then it goes up to 55%. Up to 30, 50, 55. Okay. 55%. I see. That's not just real estate, right? That's all assets, yeah. all wealth. So that would be um, like a, if you have a stock or a bonds or a property, or business, like if the, when those things get passed down, then they get taxed. Yeah, exactly. I see. So if people don't want to pay those taxes, what, what do a lot of people do? I mean, so I do know that a lot of people just never sell it, right? 
And so that's that's one reason why the OK problem exists is because people aren't willing to sell. So they just keep it there until it degrades. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then what about businesses? So if you're like a head of a business and you want to pass it down to your son or daughter, do people do that and they get taxed on that? Yeah. So how does that work? It's I I'm not 100 percent sure about the exact measurements. You have to probably ask a, a tax lawyer about it. But this that is a huge issue. First, if we talk about the real estate side, like not only do they not sell the place, they actually abandoned it. And that's the reason why there's so many uh, empty properties that with no owner, right? Because they just don't want to pay any tax for it. And they don't think they can recoup the money that the land is appraised for. And when it comes to companies, it's a huge problem with inheritance here. You have a lot of small to medium sized businesses that are run by a family and they kids for whatever reason just don't want to be part of the business and so when the father dies he basically just leave it to be it basically ceases to exist because the kids don't want to pay any money for operating the business they don't want to pay any taxes for inheritance and basically they don't get interested in it because they don't think there's enough money to support the taxes that's going to occur when the person that owns the business passes away. I understand the philosophy behind it, but I, I'm personally very much opposed to it. But, you know, I'm not a Japanese citizen, so there's only so much I can really say about the system. <laughs> yeah. And to your benefit, to your uh, argument, it's, it's true that it is causing a lot of issues in Japan that I think will need to be addressed at some point. Yeah, I think, I think something will have to change because from what I've heard is that there's so many legal battles and legal issues that come up with, during inheritance, trying to like find the rightful owner of the place, of the property, and then um, so it's just a big mess. It's just like very, very difficult. So yeah, um, I guess the, some, something will have to change. Um, but um, any case, I think one last thing that would be interesting to touch on is about some interesting projects that you've recently seen in the real estate business. I always wanted to give an example. There's this one business that I learned about called Not A Hotel. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but they're really interesting. I really like their concept, which is Not A Hotel. They own many properties around the country and the properties they, the way that they finance their business is by getting upfront investment from investors. I think foreigners, but also Japanese people too. But I think they're, they target mostly foreigners, wealthy foreigners. And so if this wealthy foreigner provides an upfront investment of a couple hundred thousand, then that foreigner will get access to the entire portfolio of properties as a guest. So you have the right, to, I guess you're kind of like a member and then you have the right to book a stay at this, uh, at this property, but then you can also go anywhere in the country. And then on the days that you're not living in the property, they, this company will rent it out and use it as a hotel for tourists. That's, uh, it's really interesting. And I think they're doing quite well. And I, I really like what they're doing. It's a very fascinating, very um, aesthetic, like design, design-centered business. So I think what they're doing is really interesting. Um, what are some projects that you've caught your eye on or any anything interesting that you've discovered on your side? Wow. First of all, that's a super interesting idea. Uh, <laughs> you have to send me more details after this so I can look it up. Because uh, it's yeah. the first time I heard about it. And there's a lot of really interesting projects going on in Japan, as you say. Um, I think for me, right, I am I have a, you know, like a, a value mindset. That's kind of where I dig into information. And uh, recently I heard about this uh, idea because um, my grandfather, he actually passed away uh, early this year. So, you know, I'm very aware of the inheritance of houses, etc., and, and how hard it can be for Japanese families. Um, and I've seen recently that there's a, a big push to, um, you know, 
from the government, but also municipality agencies to help people uh, revive these old houses when they, they get inherited. So I think that's a, a really good thing that's going on. And, you know, and it, it's quite personal help too, you know, municipalities can even recommend carpenters, etc., to restore houses or, or to keep them livable so that people stay there. So I think that's something interesting I've seen from the government. Um, but in terms of the, the value lens, I, I remember seeing this uh, article a couple of days ago where people in Japan, um, as we talked about, right, they become very interested in more personalized and, and older, more, you know, going back to the roots, the traditional roots of Japanese houses, which is so beautiful. And I heard about this phenomenon, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's called something like Heianka or something, which is basically one-story one houses and uh, it built in a more with traditional principles. So I was in Kuomoto during the earthquake of 2016, big earthquake, um, where a lot of houses fell apart, these cheaply built, you know, two-story, three-story houses. And since then... When they were being rebuilt, people were kind of tired of, you know, rebuilding the same boring old thing that didn't work in the first place. And instead, they become a push to find a Japanese type of architecture that can still be cheaply built. And so these one-story houses that are around 70 square meters with, you know, wood panels that basically uh, protect against earthquakes. You know, old Japanese houses have this very sturdy wood as a base that takes the impact of the earthquakes and to have that as a base in these new houses and then build around it in a Japanese style where you have, you know, tatami mats and you have a Japanese style, you know, low uh, ceiling, but still high enough. So it's, 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 you know, brings in the sunlight and can work well with nature. This has become a phenomenon I've seen recently and uh, actually, my uh, aunt is building one of those places right now, and the costs for them are so much less than, you know, renovating these uh, minkas, etc., which can be very specialized. These new houses, you know, they still take modern building practice into account, and she's now paying around 15 million yen just to build a completely new house. So that's less than $100,000 for a new house, right? That is still traditionally built mm -hmm. with wood and, and can withstand huge earthquakes because they don't have the bearing of multiple stories. And I think that's just a really cool trend that I'm really keeping my eyes on. That totally makes sense. I think that's great, especially when you get older, uh, you don't you don't need to go up the stairs. So it's best to just keep everything on the ground floor, keep it accessible. Yeah. That's uh, really fascinating. Right. One, one last thing about you, you talked about like how much it costs. Um, I, th I think maybe a nice way, a nice thought I had for, for those who are listening, who are interested in this kind of work is when it comes to like pure business, numbers are important, right? You want to make sure that you get a return on your investment. But when it comes to lifestyle, a lot of things are relative. And so what I mean by that is if you live in California, I'll just put Los Angeles, for example, because that's where I'm from. And if you wanted to buy a house and it was, even if it was a ugly, bad house in a bad neighborhood that was run down that you needed to renovate, it would still cost you so much money, like a million dollars, I think at least, which is kind of crazy because it's, it's a big city. There's a lot of land, but it's just the price of land or what, what's the word? The, uh, standard of living is just so high that um, even in the worst cases, you're going to be spending ridiculous money. So it's just better to rent and often share a house with friends or strangers, which is not ideal. Hmm. But if you wanted to have that kind of lifestyle, but in Japan, you could have an incredible, beautiful house that you had to renovate, but you could buy that for a, a fraction of the price hundred thousand dollars or less even and so when you're considering investing in japan in some kind of property i think yeah that's really important to to consider it's probably the, like, yeah it's a huge huge factor to consider because people will think like oh you know it would be nice to have a zero yen house to buy 
um, maybe a hundred thousand is a kind of expensive for me, but in the, the grand scheme of things, when you do a, a relative analysis, it's really a very deep, deep in value. And, uh, so I think it's, it's a very interesting place to be in, in, in history, in this country. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see how things go on my side. And, and also for you, I'd, I'd love to meet up in Tokyo sometime. It'd be good to meet you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That would be amazing, I think. And yeah, I'll be here for a while. <laughs> as long as there's value to be had in Japan, I'll probably be living here. Cool. Well, I think uh, you'll be here for a long time then, because I think things are starting to, to really grow, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, sorry. One, one last thing is um, to tell people more about your work and the work that you do. So we there's a lot of things that you write about that we didn't touch on that are very, I think people would love to to learn about, such as analysis on very specific companies and, and different stocks. So yeah, please tell people where they can learn more. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you for this part. Um, yeah. So my main uh, venue is konichivalue.com. So uh, <laughs> hopefully you can put a link in the description. Main thing I do there is I analyze the nooks and crannies of value in Japan. So, you know, for example, the I haven't written about Akias yet, actually, but and you know how you can find cheap housing how you can find cheap loans and also i do analysis on particular stocks i find extra interesting so right now for example i'm writing a stock about mizuno the shoe company uh, that has been basically forgotten about the stock world uh, it's extremely cheap and people are talking about nike or asics but they're forgetting that there's all these other valuable stocks <laughs> shoe stocks in this case in japan so that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm finding value in Japan in every way possible, whether it be real estate or products or stocks. Wonderful. Thanks for taking the time. Wish you the best. Thank you so much for having me. 